you got your Bibles, open up to Acts chapter 2 as we continue to go through the study of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. We're going to be looking at Peter's sermon at Pentecost, and we're actually going to just look at the first few verses, verses 14 to 21, and we're going to talk about explaining Pentecost, explaining Pentecost. You got to understand, Pentecost has just taken place right before their eyes. There is a tremendous gathering of people. Hundreds of thousands of people have come to fill the temple at this time. They've come to worship God during this festive week, during the Feast of Weeks. They've come to bring their offerings to God, and God is getting ready to give them the greatest blessing they've ever experienced. It's a promise that he has told to them again and again and again that is coming. And so God, as he's getting ready to bring this promise, he pours out the Holy Spirit on them. The wind blows through the town. There's the noise of a mighty rushing wind. It catches the people's attention and they begin to gather to where the disciples become out of the upper room and there they begin to speak with tongues because flames of fire of tongues have fallen on their shoulders and they begin there to preach the message of the gospel. The whole purpose of Pentecost was to begin the start of the church, was to inspire and fill those disciples with a boldness and a word to be able to preach the mighty acts of God and transform and change and begin to start something that had never been started before, and that was the church. God was bringing Pentecost, but here's the thing. As Pentecost begins, of course, there are always going to be those detractors. There are always going to be those that want to explain away what God is doing. And so this morning, we're going to look at two explanations to what is happening at Pentecost. We'll begin by talking about the refuting of the naysayers. Look with me in verses 14 and 15. It says, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Let me tell you something. When God begins to move, there are always naysayers. There are always people that want to dismiss the mighty acts of God. And that's what's taking place here. These people have gathered around. They can't understand what's taking place. These men are speaking in a multitude of tongues. In other words, Peter is getting ready to preach, and I believe he's speaking more than likely his natural tongue of Aramaic, and they're all hearing their own languages at this time. There's no confusion, but there is a mighty move of God because the people have already wondered, how are they able to speak these languages? Remember, they're later on going to say these are untrained and uneducated men. How in the world were they able to do it? Well, by the power and the Spirit of God that fell upon them. But these naysayers want to talk away. They want to remove this mighty act of God. And so in verse 15, it says, for these are not drunk. But in verse 13, he gets that from that verse where it says, others mocking said, they are full of new wine. They're full of new wine. These guys are drunk. They're off their rockers. Now, I don't know if you've been around too many drunks, but drunks don't typically make sense. They don't. You may say, brother, I've never been around a drunk. Well, congratulations, you're very pious. We appreciate your honesty. But if you've ever been around a drunk, they don't make sense. In fact, they slur their words. 
They, they don't know what they're talking about. In fact, they'll repeat themselves over and over again. In no sense, in no way, or no fathom can we understand that that's what was taking place here. In fact, Peter kind of mocks it. You realize Peter kind of mocks it when he says this. He says, since it is only the third hour of the day. In other words, it's 9 a.m. It's 9 a.m. Who in the world would be drunk already at 9 a.m.? Well, I can tell you who would be drunk at 9 a.m., an alcoholic. All right? But Peter is saying, look, this is not what's taking place. They're not drunk. The Spirit of God has fallen, and he's getting ready to explain it. But first he has to initiate and get it out of their minds what the naysayers are proclaiming. He wants to stop the mouths of the fools. And he says, this is not so. I can tell you that when God begins to move, everybody around, there's always going to be someone in the crowd that's going to say, nope, that wasn't God. That was something else. I remember when we started a program called Youth for Christ, we went into Randleman Middle School. It was one of the greatest and most exciting times of my ministry. Uh, We started there at this middle school, and uh, it started out with about 40, 50 students. And it was exciting how God grew it from one year to the next. And we started gaining ground. We had 200 students one year, and then finally we got up to where we had 300 middle schoolers every Friday where I got to preach the gospel to them. Every single Friday, God was moving. It was amazing. The principal was with us. The teachers were for us. We were having salvations. We were handing out Bibles. Kids were taking Bibles home. God was moving in an amazing way. The enemy did start attacking. We had a few Muslims in the school that said, hey, we don't like what's going on there, and we need you to stop it. And the principal simply said, no one is forcing your kids to go in there. They're not being taught that. This is before school, and we can't stop it. But I want to tell you. The sad thing is, is not only did outsiders try to attack it, but there were naysayers from within that tried to attack it. They said, let me tell you something. I can tell you why you're getting those students in there. I remember this person. I can tell you why you're getting those students in there. It's because you're feeding them donuts and you're giving them juice. You're feeding them and you're taking care of them. And and that's why they're coming in there. And I remember looking at them and I said, simply said this. I said, well, you know, that's pretty amazing. I said, we have 300 students coming in there every Friday. I said, but we only have 144 donuts. <laughs> Isn't it amazing that there are always naysayers? They can find the one thing wrong. Let me tell you, if you live with a negative Nancy, I'm sorry for you. But there are people that are out there that in everything, they can find the negative. They can find the wrong. They can find what the problem is. And that's what's taking place here. God has moved mightily, and immediately the naysayers came out and said, they must be drunk. There's no way this is a movement of God. We've got to be able to explain it away. When God begins to move, be ready. There will always be naysayers trying to explain away what God is trying to do. But you see, Peter didn't want to remain there. He stopped there briefly. But he wanted to get to something a little bit more important. And he wanted to explain the prophecy. In Joel 2.16, he says, but this is what is spoken by the prophet Joel. He says, I need to explain something to you. We're going to go back to the prophet Joel. Now, Joel prophesied around the mid-800 B.C. So we're talking 900 years before this time. Joel had prophesied about this. In fact, Joel had told some interesting stories, if you want to be honest. He talked about an enemy coming across like locusts that devoured the land. 
And then he talked about this great drought that would happen in the land of Israel. And so they would go through all of this destitution. And God was explaining to them that just as the land would be destitute, so were their souls. Now imagine that. God is using the land as an illustration for their souls. Your souls are just as destitute as the land, as a barren land and a drought-filled land. But then he gives this offer to them. He says, you need to repent. There was a national call for repentance. And in Joel's prophecy, he tells them to repent. And when they would repent, God would restore them. Isn't that the blessing of God? That if you repent of your sins, God will restore you and he will use you. But after Joel explained that, he went into this prophecy. And first he begins with the outpouring of God's spirit. Look with me in Acts 2. We're going to be in verse 17. And it shall come to pass... In the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on your men servants and on your maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. Wow. He says, let me, let me explain something to you. There's an outpouring of the spirit of God that is happening here. In verse 17 says, it shall come to pass in the last days that I'll pour out my spirit, and get this, on all flesh. Now understand that Pentecost was just the beginning of this spiritual feeling that's taken place. That was not the only time the spirit of God has come down upon God's people. In fact, the moment you get saved, the spirit of God comes down upon you. The moment you get saved, you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. He comes inside of you. He lives in you. He convicts you. He changes you. He moves in you. He guides you. He directs you. The Holy Spirit lives within you the moment you get saved. But what he's talking about here is that it would fall on all flesh. In other words, this was specific for the people of Israel to understand. This is not just for the people of Israel. God has opened the door for the Gentiles as well. That all people everywhere, whosoever could be saved. Whosoever could receive the power of the Holy Spirit. There's an outpouring that's coming on all flesh. Now I'm going to tell you, some of you look spiritually dry. Can we be honest for a moment? Some of us can be a little spiritual dry. In other words, we look like the dry and destitute land. We look like prudes of Christ instead of people of Christ. We look like we've sucked on some sour lemons as opposed to having the joy of the Lord. To be honest with you, when the Spirit of God comes upon you, there's a joy that fills you that can never be contained. There's a joy that comes in you that will excite you, that will fill you, that will use you. That's the Holy Spirit who's dwelling within you. And what he's saying here is that Spirit comes on all flesh. I think some of you need to be filled back up. Your cup's a little empty. I'm here to tell you my cup is running over. I'm having a drink from my saucer right now. That's where you need to be. We've got to get to a point where we understand the filling of the Spirit of God as he wants to move in hearts and lives. He's explaining Pentecost to him going, guys, wake up. The Spirit has come and he's available to all if you're ready, if you want him, if you want to see him move. And he says, here's what's going to happen. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Now, I want you to understand something. A lot of people get a little uncomfortable with that. And let me just explain something to you. The Spirit of God is for man and woman. It's for child and senior adult. The Spirit of God is for all people. There is no separation there. 
And he says, I'll pour it out upon them to prophesy. Now, a lot of people say, well, wait a minute. I don't, I don't have the gift of prophecy. Let me explain something to you. The gift of prophecy was not always about foretelling or foretelling the future. It wasn't just about prophesying something that is to come. What it was is it was proclaiming the words of God as God has laid them upon your heart. Every one of us ought to be prophets for God. Every one of us ought to be proclaiming the word of God to our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, and our family. Every one of us should be prophets for the Lord our God, declaring the word of God to people who don't know God. He said, I'll feel you, and you'll prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Now, I've often wondered what's the difference between vision and dreams. I'm going to give you my understanding of it, and I'm not going to say that it's a complete or accurate understanding, but I believe visions happen when you're awake and dreams happen when you're asleep. That's about the only difference I can think of. But when I think about it, in the Old Testament, God used visions and dreams. He even used them in the New Testament as well. Daniel was a man who was filled with visions and dreams from God. Daniel was also called an interpreter of dreams. Nebuchadnezzar brought him in to interpret dreams to help him understand what God was trying to do. We also know that Paul was a man of vision. God had taken him up into the second heaven. God pulled him up, showed him the glorious residence of heaven, showed him all those things, and then allowed him to come down with a message, but also gave him a thorn in the flesh to humble him at that time. We know that God has used visions. We know that God has used dreams. We can go all the way back to the book of Genesis, and we can look at Joseph, who was given a dream by God. He was able to spare the Egyptians for the famine that was yet to come. We see these things happening again and again and again. What is the purpose of visions and dreams? It is to prepare us for the movement of God. Now, please understand, your vision and your dream cannot surpass the Word of God. Your vision or your dream cannot disrespect the Word of God. Your vision or your dream cannot stand against the Word of God. The Word of God better be able to confirm your vision and your dream. If it does not, it is not from God. God will never differentiate from His Word. He'll never separate from His Word. He will never give you something outside of the Word of God. It is perfect. It is complete. We do not need another word. We don't need another vision. We don't need another dream. We don't need another prophet. It's proclaiming things that are not in the Word of God. We don't need another book. We don't need more promises. We've got everything we need right here contained in the Word of God. We better stand on it. We better believe it. We better preach it. We better teach it. We better follow it. The truth is, is God has given us His Word. He has poured out His Spirit, and He is going to use, get this, use His people. Let me tell you something. God doesn't want to just use me. God wants to use you. God wants to use every one of us in here. God has a plan to use you. He wants your voice to be available for him. He wants your feet to walk where he wants you to walk. He wants your hands to do what he wants you to do. And he wants your mouth to speak what he wants you to speak. Will you be available? If the Spirit of God is in you, he'll direct you. He'll guide you. He'll lead you. He'll speak through you. In verse 18, he says, And all my men servants and all my maid servants. Let me explain something to you. A lot of people do not like the term servant. But I'm here to tell you, I'm just fine with being a servant of God. I'm just fine. I'll be the lowest galley slave for the Lord. I love what the psalmist said in Psalm 84. God, I just want to be a doorkeeper in your house. I'll be satisfied to let people in and out to come into your presence. I'll be satisfied to do whatever you want. Call me a servant. Just call me yours. My men servants and my maid servants. He says, I'll pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. Wow, 
What a blessing. God wants to use every last one of us. There's not one of you in here that God has no desire to sit on the shelf. But I tell you, he will. He will sit you on the shelf if you keep sin in your heart. He will sit you on the shelf if you refuse to be used by him. He will sit you on the shelf if you are unavailable. If you avoid him, if you turn from him, he will set you on the shelf. I'm here to tell you, folks, you need to evaluate your life today. Are you on the shelf for God or are you in service for God? Are you serving him or are you basically sitting back going, well, it's time for me to be served? Let me explain something to you. If you have an attitude that it's time for you to be served, you have completely lost what Jesus Christ came here for. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost, and he came to serve mankind. And if our Savior came to serve, we better serve. You see, he explains the outpouring of the Spirit of God from the passage of Joel. And you would think that that's where Peter would have stopped. You would have thought he'd have finished there because that kind of explains what's taking place in Pentecost. But Peter keeps on reading, keeps on speaking the words from Joel. And we see the divine wonders all around. Look with me in verse 19. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now I want you to understand something. These two verses I just read did not happen at Pentecost. These things did not take place at Pentecost. So you might be wondering like me, why did Peter continue on in his message? Why didn't he just stop at verse 19? Or why didn't he move on to the next prophet? Why didn't he move on to the next scripture passage? Because what Peter is doing here is he is setting it up for you to understand we are in the last days. Even though Jesus Christ has not come back yet, guess what, folks? We are in the last days. We have been in the last days for about 2,000 years. Ever since Jesus Christ was died, crucified on the cross, died, buried, was resurrected three days later, and ascended into heaven, ever since then, we have been in the last days. You say, how do you know that? Because he can come back any time he wants to. That's the last days. The last days mean that when the trumpet sounds and the church is taken up, it starts. It's going. It's headed this way. We need to understand we've got to be ready. It's on its way. And so Peter is trying to explain to them that guess what? You're in the last days. Jesus Christ could come back at any time. Get ready. Get ready. He wasn't wasting any time. And he began to share some of these things. He talked about them in these words, signs and wonders. The word wonders comes from the word teras, which means something that invokes astonishment or amazement in the beholder. Or a simple way, it takes your breath away or it drops your jaw. It drops your jaw. Think about that. He says this 16 times in the New Testament when he uses the word wonders. When he uses the word signs, it comes from the Greek word simeon, which means miracles with a special lesson. It's used 77 times in the New Testament, but I love it. It's an attestation to the movement of God. In other words, when you see signs and wonders, you know God is at work. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I think one of the greatest problems that we have today is we see on television some of these shenanigans that are going on in churches. We see some false acts of signs and wonders, do we not? 
And I'm here to tell you the problem that we have is because we've seen a few false acts of signs and wonders. We digress from wanting to see any acts of signs and wonders. We stop short. We say, oh, well, because it happened over there, we don't want that to happen here, so we don't want anything to do with it. And that's why we have, in a lot of ways, quenched the Spirit of God. You see, we worship the same God of the New Testament. He's the same God that still works today. He's the God who did miracles back then. He's still a God who does miracles today. He's a God who did provided healing back then. He's a God who provides healing today. He's a God who saved back then. He's a God who saves today. He was a refuge back then. He's a refuge now. He's the one that can help you to walk on the waters when you feel like you're treading and falling short. He's the one that can pick you up and lift you up and bring you out of the miry clay. He's the one that wants to watch over you, take care of you, provide for you, direct you, and love on you but you have got to be filled with the spirit of God you have to be there are signs and wonders and he gives a few of them he says blood and fire and vapor of smoke now I'm going to tell you we see a lot of these in the book of Revelation in particular when we talk about blood we see it in Revelation chapter 8 verses 7 and 8 it says this the first angel sounded and hell and fire followed mingled with blood and they were thrown to the earth and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up then the second angel sounded and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood let me tell you something when god pours out blood upon the earth that is a judgment that god is pouring out upon them during the tribulational period these are the trumpets of god that are being blasted the judgment of god that is being brought upon mankind blood will fall from heaven and not only that when that asteroid or whatever it is that hits that waters it's going to turn the waters into blood god is using blood as a divine judgment not only that but he's also using fire according to revelation chapter 8 and verse 5 he uses this fire, and he says, Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. Let me tell you something. When fire starts falling from the sky, you better wake up. But that's one of the trumpet blasts. Fire is going to fall from the sky. God is going to bring down his judgment upon mankind. I'm here to tell you, these are not going to be pretty days. But he also uses smoke in Revelation chapter 9, verses 2 and 3. It says this, And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. Let me tell you something. God is going to rampantly run all over this world with judgment. Now, I'm going to tell you, if you read the rest of that one, it's the fifth trumpet. It's horrifying. These beasts that come out of that pit, that come out with smoke, it says they're given the power to hurt mankind for five months when they sting you. For five months, you'll be in such immense pain, you'll want to take your life, but it says you can't. God won't allow it. During that time, they'll suffer such judgment that has never been known to mankind, but it's coming through blood and fire and also through smoke. But not only that, God is going to do a mighty work in the heavens above. It says, and the sun shall be turned in the darkness and the moon into blood. Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 and 14 tell us about these signs. It says, I looked, and when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. Man, can you imagine an earth that quakes so badly that it shakes everything out of its place? Now, a lot of people look at that passage of Scripture and they say, Oh, Brother John, a lot of that happened when Christ 
was crucified. It got dark. And then there was a quake. Can I tell you something? There's coming an even greater day when these things are going to happen. The sun is going to be darkened. The moon is going to turn into blood. Now, I know it's funny because we even see blood moons today, don't we? We've seen a few in our lifetime. But there's going to come a point where God is going to show his wrath upon mankind. And that blood moon is going to be a part of it. But also the entire earthquaking is going to be a part of it. But I want you to understand that that's during a tribulational period. But there is one great judgment that is coming according to Matthew chapter 24. Look with me here. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. This is after the tribulation has ended. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear into heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Let me tell you something. He's going to do it right when he's coming back. Now, this is not the rapture passage. I want you to understand. This is the judgment passage. This is when he comes back that second time. This is when he comes back after the tribulation is over. When he comes back, everybody will look into the sky, and they'll see him coming. But let me explain something to you. When he comes on that white horse, it's too late. It's over. It is finished. When he comes back in judgment, and he's ready to pour out his judgment upon mankind, and he shakes this earth like he's going to shake it, and he causes these signs to be taken, everybody's eyes are going to be drawn to the Son of God, and by then it will be too late. God is bringing this judgment on mankind, and he calls it the day of the Lord. You need to understand something about the day of the Lord. It is not a pretty day. It was not a day that people were supposed to be looking forward to. And we see this in two major, uh, two of the minor prophets. In Amos chapter 5, beginning of verse 18, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or as though he went into the house and leaned his hand on the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? Another one of the prophets, Zephaniah, in Zephaniah 1, verses 14 and 18, declares the same thing. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath. A day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. I'll bring distress upon men, and they shall walk like blind men because they've sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like refuse. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy. For he'll make speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. Let me explain something to you. A lot of people look at it and they think, man, the day of the Lord is going to be a great day. Understand the day of the Lord is a day of judgment. It is a day of devastation. Imagine if you will, it's a day of judgment for you. How, How often do you look forward to being judged? Could you imagine if you were arrested and had to stand before a judge, how many of you would be a little bit fearful? Imagine, though, you're standing before a judge who knows your entire heart, who knows every word you've ever spoken, who knows every thought you've ever thought. He knows everything about you, and you can't hide it from him. The day of the Lord is not going to be a pretty day. It's going to be a day of judgment. But I praise God, Joel didn't end there, and neither did Peter. From verse 21, he tells us that there's salvation among the lost. 
He says, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. <laughs> oh, there's mercy even when there's judgment. There's grace even when God is about to pour out his wrath upon mankind. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You realize that Paul used these same words in the book of Romans. I love it in Romans chapter 10. We begin in verse 9. I know I've got verses 10 to 13. I'm going to start in verse 9. And if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with a heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You realize today you can be saved from the judgment of God. The truth is, is one day we will be judged. One day we will stand before God. Every last one of us will be judged. And the question is, is will you have someone there with you? Remember in Gardendale, Alabama, my daughter got a speeding ticket. She comes home and she's crying about it. And she's telling us about this speeding ticket that she's gotten. And she's telling her mom and I, I wasn't speeding. I didn't do it. I wasn't. And she begins to explain the story to us. And she said, there were two cars that flew by me. There was a red car and then there was a silver car. She said the officer wasn't even where he said he was going to be at. The officer was at the store. He wasn't even in his car. He gets in his car and he follows us down the road and he pulls me over. He said, and, I, and she said, I saw those other cars go in front of me. So being the good parent that I was, I wanted to believe her, right, as all parents do. In fact, I, I had heard that this guy was known for giving tickets without even having the facts. It was happening. He loved to give teenagers tickets. So I went to some of the officers in our church, and I said, hey, I said, what can you tell me about this guy? And what can you tell me? Is there any reason we should fight this ticket? Now, you say, well, Brother John, you could have just had her go in and pleaded guilty. Can I explain something to you? I don't plead guilty if I'm not guilty. I don't care if it's to a lesser charge or not. If I'm not guilty, I'm not lying. And it's not going to go on record that I lied. You don't do that. Sorry. But she goes, I, I promise you, Dad, I wasn't. I said, okay, well, I'm going to take you at your word. So I went to these officers. I said, what can we do about this ticket? How can I help her? And one of the officers in our church said, here, here's some of the questions you can ask. You knew he wasn't in his car. You knew it wasn't his radar detector that scanned her. You, and basically, he gave me all this information. And I'm thinking, man, I'm going to go in there. I'm going to blow this guy away. So we stand up. The judge asks Hannah Ferguson. She stands up. I stand up with her. I'm her dad. And he calls her forward. He says, how do you please? She says, not guilty. He said, you know, you'll have to go to trial with this. She said, yes. He said, so they set a trial date. So we go the next time. We go to this trial. We're standing there before the judge. I've got my list of questions. I've got everything ready to go. And he looks at Hannah. He says, how do you plead? I'm going to give you another chance. She says, not guilty. He goes, okay, I'm going to give you a chance. And he lets the officer go first, and he shares what he had. And then he goes, all right, young lady, now you can. And I went, well, Mr. Culpepper, can you? And the judge goes, whoa, 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 whoa. And I went, what? He said, sir, are you a lawyer? No, but I feel like one today. I did sleep at a Holiday Inn. He said, you're not a lawyer. 
He said, you can't speak for her, but I'm her dad. It doesn't matter. If she's going to defend her case, she has to defend. So I kind of gave her the questions, and I couldn't say anything. Needless to say, she was found guilty. I want to explain something to you. One day you're going to stand before God. And mom and daddy can't be there for you. Well, Lord, I I took them to church. I taught them right. I made sure they were in church as long as they were in my house. And mom and daddy won't be there. Your Sunday school teacher and your pastor won't be there on the day of judgment for you. Well, Lord, they, they taught in the church, and Lord, they, they were there every time the doors were open. In fact, they got a perfect attendance Sunday school pen. No, they won't be there for you either. You know who else won't be there for you on the day of judgment? The hypocrite. The one that you want to point to and say, it's their fault. That's why I didn't go to church. That's the reason why I never gave my life to you. They're the reason why, because of the way they live. They won't be there for you. Nobody will be there for you. You want to know why? Because if they tried to stand up for you, God would look at them as the righteous judge and he would say, you're not an advocate and you can't speak for them. But I will tell you that if you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have an advocate who will stand there with you and he will defend you and he will stand there and say I poured out my blood for this one I took their place and so therefore because I paid for their sins and because I took their place they have my righteousness and therefore they can enter in you see there's only one advocate for you on the day of judgment and his name is Jesus but unless you've called upon the name of the Lord you will not be saved He will not stand there for you and with you. And no amount of excuses you have, God will not let you in unless the advocate stands for you. Have you called on the name of the Lord?